And the ways in which Christians have failed to live up to that is egregious sin. Mm -hmm. Um, And then to look at the fact that actually from the first and today, Christianity is the greatest, most multicultural, most multi-ethnic movement in all of history. Yeah. And today it's both the largest and most diverse belief system in the world. So if we care about diversity, if our non-Christian friends care about diversity, which thank God they do, Mm -hmm. then that should draw them to Mm. Jesus rather than pushing them away from him. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Are you in the Orange County or Santa Ana area? We are exploring a church plant, Santa Ana Reformed, with the oversight and accountability of Oceanside URC and Reverend Danny Hyde. If you are interested or you know someone who might be interested in the area, please check out our show notes for a link to sign up for updates. Our Twitter or Instagram at guiltgracepod or Santa Ana URC for the same sign-up link, or simply email us at santaannareformed at gmail.com. We begin meetings on October 28th at 6.30 p.m. at 4th Street Market in downtown Santa Ana. Now on with the episode. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And today is a book club episode, and we have two books we're going to talk about, and they're both published by Crossway, both written by Rebecca McLaughlin, and one of them is 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity, and the other one is confronting Christianity. 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion. So we'll jump into those books and that conversation with Rebecca here in a moment. Just as a reminder on the show notes, the Society of Reformed Podcasters is one of our links. It's other podcasters that we have a, uh, we're in a network with. So if you like our content and our show, you'll probably enjoy those shows as well. There's also a link to Napark churches. It's a local church finder. So you can find a reformed church near you, near your area. There's also a link to Crossway. So you can hit that Crossway link, find all their books, but including these two books we're talking about today from Rebecca, Confronting Christianity and 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. So we'll jump in and have Peter further introduce Rebecca McLaughlin. Yeah, I was, I was, I was scared the first time you you pronounced, and I was I'm scared the first time I pronounced her last name because we both had it wrong before the recording, and so I'm glad yeah. that we now know it's McLaughlin and not the mm-hmm. other two ways that we were describing it. Yeah, because we've gotten it it's wrong right. before. My husband's entire family has it wrong as well, so it's okay. It's good. We're in a long line of people who get your name wrong, so I'm glad. I'm glad, <laughs> I'm glad that we're we have we yes. have solid company. <clears throat> so but, did did I say it right or? Yeah, no? you did. Think, you sort of okay, you yeah. took it slowly. Hey, I'm used to it. People do that with my name, but um, if, if I got it wrong, it sounds like some of your family would say I got it right. So. That's, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, if 
you guys don't know who uh, Dr. McLaughlin is, she's she grew up in the UK, has a PhD from Cambridge and a theological degree from Oak Hill College, moved to America, spent nine years at the Veritas Forum, and she served as VP of content, uh, had the uh, opportunity and privilege to identify and equip Christian professors to speak about their faith in relation to their work. And in 2017, she co-founded Vocable Communications. It's a speech-focused, data-driven communications dedicated to helping deliver, uh, leaders deliver messages that change minds. It sounds like I need some help myself as well. So <laughs> thanks for coming on to talk about your books. We're super excited. We've wanted to have you on for a little bit. So it's, it's, it's fun having you on finally. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. And before we go into the content of these two books, which are amazing for just getting right to the heart of a lot of questions people, both believers and non-believers have about our faith. How about just for uh, opening it up for you to explain um, who you are to the audience before you started writing these books, what led you up in, in uh, to writing these books and uh, just a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Yeah. I grew up in the UK as maybe discernible from my accent <laughs> and came from a, a sort of mixed Christian family. Uh, hmm. I tend to say my, my mum's side of the family is Catholic. My dad's side of the family is the church of England. And there's a mixture of you know, folks who, who were going to church because they actually believed anything and folks who went because it was what you did on a Sunday morning because of, hmm. you know, your particular cultural background. Uh, so I grew up in, you know, a church going family, but very much felt like I came to my own faith early on um and and probably at a similar time honestly that my parents were really figuring out their own faith so i think there there were blessings to that actually of, of never having felt like it was sort of my parents faith, faith that i was then having to figure out well what's what's mine in here which i know, you know sometimes kids who grow up in, in, in very christian yeah. families can yeah. have that sense and from pretty early on i think from about age nine i remember being very sure about jesus and being in environments where I was sort of in, in very kind of academic um, educational environments where most of my friends and teachers thought that Christianity was not worth considering, to be honest. Hmm. Um, so went especially between ages 11 and 18 to a very strong academic girls school in the UK where I was continually in conversation with really smart, thoughtful, kind people who thought that Christianity was was dead in the water. Hmm. And and from that time onwards, I was having conversations with friends about science or about sexuality or about absolute versus relative truth and the uniqueness of Christ and all these sorts of things uh, that, that tend to come up um, in conversation with, with non-believing friends. And that just kind of continued as I went on to university um, and got to interact again, especially actually with people from all over the world who come to study at Cambridge, um, mm -hmm. many of whom would not have identified as, as Christians at all. So it, it, to some extent, I feel like I've been doing what I'm doing now for as long as I can remember. I try mm. to you know, articulate why I think that actually Jesus shines more brightly when you compare him to mm. any other option. I think sometimes, especially Christian parents, are kind of concerned to yeah. heal their kids from divergent ideas and, and ideologies and ways of thinking because they're, they're, they're worried. And I understand that concern. They're worried that if, if their child gets exposed to, to the best arguments from a, a non-Christian perspective, that somehow that'll 
fracture their faith in hmm. Jesus. Yeah. I actually feel opposite, um, both from my own experience and, and as I raise my kids, I'm sort of, I, I want them to hear the best arguments and ideas from yeah. all sorts of different angles so that they know from the beginning that I'm not just, um, you know, trying to to sell them on something that isn't going to stand up in court later on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But that actually, uh, I, I'm, I'm sharing Jesus with them as the, the most beautiful and compelling um, and credible answer to their hardest questions. So that was, you know, very, very much part of my life growing up. And then, as you mentioned earlier, I, I spent nine years. Well, I, I married a guy from Oklahoma, funnily enough, um, huh. which is relevant <laughs> to this story because I didn't want to leave the UK at all. I, I felt uh, very happy there and very much like uh, that was a you know, relatively gospel poor country. Yeah. Um, need of, of, of people to um, share our faith in Jesus and that America, by comparison, is a rel- relatively gospel rich country. So it would never have crossed my mind, honestly, to be, to move over here, hmm. but not for marrying this guy from Oklahoma. And sometimes it's, it's really hard to find a good evangelical man in, in England. So sometimes you've got to <laughs> you got to go to the south. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we we got married two years into my seminary education, and then moved over here um, after I graduated from that, and he'd finished his PhD, uh, and we settled in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts here, and that's when I started hmm. working for the Veritas Forum. Whereas you mentioned, I, I was interacting with Christian professors who were at the absolute top of their fields hmm. at universities like Harvard and MIT and Stanford and Cambridge and Oxford. Yep. And hearing their faith stories, you hmm. know, many of them actually became Christians later in life, you know, as, as um, adolescents or as, as students or as young adults. Um, and hearing how they thought about their faith in relation to their work. Hmm. And when I came out of that, I realized in every field that's supposed to have discredited or disproved the Christian faith, they're actually leading world experts who would be recognized by secular peers as leading world experts who are very serious followers of Jesus. And and I I didn't want to keep their insights and and research to myself. So I wrote Confronting Christianity Mm. partly to, to provide those insights and those stories to Christians in general and, and to to non-Christians in particular. So I wrote both Confronting Christianity and 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask, which is sort of a junior version of the first book. I wrote them addressed to non-believers. Okay. Now, of course, the the majority of people who bought the books themselves have been Christians, but the idea was this is a book you can buy. You hand off somebody else. And then give to a friend. And and rather than you having to do all the translation work, some of that translation work is sort of done for you Mm. so you can have a conversation with your friend after. Mm. Yeah, so that's, sounds, that's helpful. Sounds like confronting Christianity, 12 hard questions for the world's largest religion was written first, right? That's right. And then you, and then after that, a uh, couple of years later, you wrote the 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity. So um, I know you touched on this, but what made you, after you wrote the confronting Christianity book, uh, kind of feel like you needed to write the 10 questions. So I, I love that there's all in all 22 questions here, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> so we could keep, we could keep a, well, one some book, of them 22 overlap. questions confronting Christianity. <laughs> yeah. Some, some of them overlap. Um, we could have a, a, a podcast interview all day today going through all 22, but um, yeah. What made you kind of feel like you needed to write this, uh, the 10 questions one. Confronting Christianity is, specifically written to 
pretty educated adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't mean that exclusively in that somebody, you know, there have been some younger teenagers and, and even sort of 11 year olds who've, uh, who've read it and, and enjoyed it. But it, it's got a lot of footnotes. It, it's written in a way that, um, I'm, you know, I'm hoping will will speak straightforwardly to people who have, you know, tertiary education and a decently strong academic background. I've tried to make it accessible more broadly. Um, but after it came out, I, I started to get messages from people saying, it'd be really helpful actually to have a, a junior version of this. Mm-hmm. For, for kids um, who, you know, coming up maybe in Christian families or um, again for, for kids, for Christian kids to share with their non-Christian friends, because actually all the questions that I'm addressing in confronting Christianity, uh, whether it's questions about sexuality or, or suffering um, or um, psychology or, or history, all of those co- kinds of questions are actually ones that, that younger people encounter as well. Mm-hmm. And my own kids, are my, my eldest now is 11 and my, my second oldest is nine. And both of them, you know, they're in, in um, Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts public schools, and they encounter all day long many of the, the hmm. things that I'm um, talking about in, in 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask. So, so that second book is, is a, in some ways a condensation or a condensed and um, simplified but not dumbed down, I think I'd like yeah. to say, version of, of Confronted Christianity. So it covers, broadly speaking, the same material. I've condensed it a bit, but... And, and actually, the, the one area that's expanded rather than condensed is actually the, the chapters on, on gender and sexuality, because even in the two years between writing Confronting Christianity and writing 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask, the, the conversation about transgender questions has actually moved quite fast. Mm-hmm. And it, it's yet more pressing, and especially something that, that kids are encountering a lot in school. So I just wanted to create a bit more space for that as well. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, and, and reading through some of this too, and we had Dr. Kruger on a couple months ago talking about his book, um, Religion mm-hmm. 101. Um, so thinking through <clears throat> your confess- Confronting Christianity book more particularly uh, before this one, how, how would you say this is different from like a Kruger's book on Religion 101, um, more like the uh, background of the New Testament stuff? So what, what specific, I know you talked a little bit about those professors that you had and some of their questions about it that you're answering, mm-hmm. um, but what specifically are you did you write that's different than kind of the apologetics books that are out there right now for those who are looking for more like intense, more in-depth Christian questions? Yeah. The large majority of apologetics books and including um, Mike Krieger's are addressed to Christians. So I think he, he wrote his book as a series of letters to his daughter. She yep. Going yep. Just yep. lovely. You know, it's a wonderful way to approach things. Yeah. One of the distinctives about both these books is that they are written to non-Christians. Okay. Mm. And okay. what they do is they start by saying, you know, taking the the objection or the question at hand and saying, here's why that's a, a really good objection mm. to Christianity. So for example, you know, many people have have the idea that Christianity is is against diversity and that Christianity is sort of inherently like white Western religion. Yeah. Of privilege, um, they associate Christianity often with racism and with cultural imperialism and with all these things. Yeah. And what I wanted to say in the book is like, that's a really good reason to hmm. dismiss Christianity. And and let's be real about the ways in which Christians have, all too often, or white Christians like me have all too often acted like that's true. Hmm. But when we look more closely, 
we find that rather than Christianity being the enemy of racial diversity and love across racial difference, it's actually the, the best foundation for those mm. things. And historically, it's the source of our belief yeah. that people of all different racial and ethnic backgrounds from all different places are fundamentally morally equal and should be treated as such. It's actually yeah. not a self-evident truth that all men are created equal. No offense to all my American friends. It's just not. It's a biblical truth. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, and love across racial and ethnic, cultural and national difference is something that is specifically and explicitly taught in the New Testament. And the ways in which Christians have failed to live up to that is egregious sin. Mm -hmm. um, and then to look at the fact that actually from the first and today, Christianity is the greatest, most multicultural, most multi-ethnic uh, movement in all of history. Yeah. And, and today yeah. it's both the largest and most diverse belief system in the world. Yeah. So if we care about diversity, if our non-Christian friends care about diversity, which thank God they do, mm -hmm then that should draw them to Jesus mm. rather than pushing them away from him. Yeah. So that's kind of just one example of, of how <clears throat> both the books sort of try to, to connect yeah. people. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Cause I think, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong too. I think sometimes apologetics books are written actually most of the time apologetics books are written to Christians saying, Hey, here's a question. Here's how to answer this question, but it's different, I guess. And maybe, maybe you can describe like, how, how do you kind of, retweak our view retweak kind of the atheist or christian's view on <clears throat> being trained on this stuff where a christian it's sometimes written to a christian hey here's how to answer this question versus talking to an atheist or somebody who's not christian saying here's the questions here's kind of the best evidence for these questions to question some of these things but here's mm -hmm. also the evidence on historical theological exegetical so how how do you kind of navigate those waters between yeah. writing to a Christian versus writing to a non-Christian. Yeah, that's helpful. And just to pick up on, on one thing you mentioned in the middle there about evidence, um, I do think one of the distinctives of confronting Christianity is there's, there's a lot of evidence in there that hasn't been in other apologetics books because yeah. I consulted all the, the experts. <laughs> I, I'm, not an, I'm honestly not an expert in anything. Like my PhD is on prisons and Shakespeare and nobody's <laughs> yeah. asking about that. And Very closely related, yeah. It's, it's not that I think I'm an expert on these things. I, I know that I'm not, but I do yeah. know where the experts have been found. And so I've mined uh, from them. So, so one of the things that I've tried to listen to one is just like bringing a whole fresh set of evidence to a lot of these questions. But then thinking about how do we, um, in, and why should we perhaps start with thinking um, or, or writing to a non-Christian rather than to a Christian. Part of what I wanted to do was model something that um, Tim Keller describes really well. He says, if we're in conversation with somebody, we want to actually change their mind. Yeah. Human beings are incredibly bad at changing their minds. But we're <laughs> yeah. extremely tribal. Yeah. And so if, if we associate a belief with, you know, somebody outside our tribe, we don't want to hear it. And we'll discount even the very best evidence that they have. What we need to do, and this is true, I mean, this is true of Christians as well as anybody else. So it's like general human nature. That's, that's how mm -hmm. we are. If we want to persuade somebody, what we need to do is identify the beliefs that we share with them hmm. first. Yep. And and Tim Keller, I forget which way he round he does it, but I think he maybe says that you know those imagine these are called A beliefs, and then B beliefs are ones where you you disagree. Yeah. And that in order to actually persuade somebody, you need to create a kind of raft of A beliefs that you both agree on. Hmm. And, and on that raft, you need to float the B belief you want them to consider kind of across the river <laughs> to them. Because <laughs> if you just like hurl a B belief, it's going to flop down into the water. It's never going to get to them. 
So one of the things that I'm trying to model in, in both the books, as I said, is to sort of start with, okay, here's the, the best articulation of, of this objection to Christianity. And here's why everyone should be concerned about that rather than sort of going straight to, this is why it's wrong or, mm. or this, that's not really a, a big problem because of X. So yeah, that's a really big problem. Um, but on the basis of our shared beliefs, for example, in, you know, perhaps a shared value in um, a belief in love across racial difference that we might share mm -hmm. with a non-Christian event, on the, if, if you care about that, you should be drawn to Jesus. Hmm. Um, or, or if you care about justice, this is why, despite the ways in which Christians have sinned, you actually should be drawn to Jesus. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, it's a that's a strong point. I think we're we're too often towards the negativizing of other things, saying, "Hey, here's how you're wrong. Let's fix it," versus saying, "Hey, here's our our, our shared understandings. Let me tell you what the foundation of these shared understandings are." Yeah. Yeah, you know the the history very well of the church, and you you include that into the book with these conversations, these answering these questions, and. Uh, Something I really enjoyed too, I think it's in both the books, you talk about some research and projections on some, um, some experts data to say that Christianity and proof that Christianity is not dying. If anything, yeah. religion and Christianity is only growing. And so this goes against the modern, uh, atheist view that, uh, Christianity is dying uh, as we're getting more modern uh, belief systems are becoming irrelevant. So I would love for you to kind of uh, maybe unpack that for the audience, because mm. I think that's super important to just knowing like even the Western world. Yeah, we might be seeing in America and even England a decline in Christianity, but countries like China are exploding with Christianity. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. If you go back about 40 years um, and if you, you know, went back then and asked a sociologist of religion what they thought the future held, pretty much everyone was saying, as the world becomes more modern, more scientific, more educated, religious belief in general is going to decline. And their reasoning for that was that's what had happened in Western Europe, where I'm from. Mm. And, and so West, where Western Europe led, the rest of the world must follow. And America was so, sort of a weird exception that we just tried to ignore. We are weird. Yeah. <laughs> so, <indeed. laughs> so, I mean, it's funny kind of looking back, it turns out to be a very sort of white Western centric view of things to say, well, if, if they happened in Western Europe, it's got to happen everywhere else, right? Uh, that's true. What's happened then in the last four decades it is not only that religion in general and Christianity in particular has failed to decline lately, but that now as experts look out over the next 40 years to 2060, they're anticipating anticipating an increasingly religious world. Mm. So right now, Christianity is the largest global belief system. And, and here, I'm just going to talk in terms of who identifies Christians. This yep. is very common whole other there, you know, truly saved by faith in Christ, um, but just if on the demographic level. So about 31% of the world right now identifies as Christian. Huh. Um, and that proportion is set to increase slightly to 32% by 2060. Huh. Uh, the second largest global belief system is Islam. Mm -hmm. which is around 25% now and is expected to increase substantially to 31% wow. by 2060. So making it a very close competitor with Christianity. Yeah, it's funny. A lot of people think the question is like, how soon will religion die out? The real question is Christianity or Islam in the next you know, okay. couple of generations. 
Hinduism, Buddhism, the, the next largest global belief system set to decline slightly in that time period. And then the, the real shock, I think, for people is that the proportion of folks who don't affiliate with any world religion, so that includes atheists, agnostics, and just people who would say none if you gave them a census form and said which religion that yeah. you're affiliated yeah. with, um, that proportion is set to decline from 16% to 13% globally. Hmm. So, so rather than you know Christianity declining while secularism is on the rise, we're actually seeing the opposite. And one of the, one of the big reasons for that is that religious people have many more children than secular folk do. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, another reason is is what's happening in China, as you mentioned earlier, which currently China is the global center of atheism. I mean, funnily enough, side note hmm. again. Atheism is closely linked to either being a white Western man or living in a communist regime. Like those are the two, <laughs> the two types of people most likely. <laughs> That's like, true. Like yeah. um, so, so China, yeah, global center of atheism today. But the church in China is growing so fast that by 2025, they're expected to be more Christians in China than in America. And some experts think that China could be a majority Christian country by 2060. Wow. Now, pray God, let it be. And yeah. none of that is set in stone. And we could be surprised um, positively or negatively there. But but uh, some of the world experts on these questions think that that's a very real possibility. <clears throat> hmm. Yeah, I mean, so connected, connected the next question to kind of on our, our assumptions 40 years ago, what's happening now with, with the growth of some of these movements. Um, also, with some of the questions that you're asking to um, is Christi isn't Christianity homophobic? Does it condone slavery? Does it denigrate women? Have these have these questions changed over the last ten or fifteen years? Are, are you like when you read when you write this book? Are we anticipating some of them are growing in popularity? Some of them are decreasing in popularity. So what what did you see in your research in terms of the questions being asked that are different from times past and that are kind of gaining yeah. steam in the future? Yeah, I think if you go back kind of ten to twenty years. Most of, of Christian apologetics <clears throat> would have been looking at, you know, how can we demonstrate the intellectual credibility of Christianity? So, so most non-Christians would think um, that Christianity was foolish, you know, maybe against science or yeah. how can you believe when he was raised from the dead? Those sorts of things. So, so Christians, as a Christian, <clears throat> I would have been seen as um, misguided and foolish and naive and uneducated and <laughs> you know, something of that nature. Today, the, the biggest thrust of, of questions and challenges to Christianity is actually more moral. Hmm. So it's not you Christians are so foolish. It's you Christians are homophobic, misogynistic, racist bigots. To put it lightly, yeah. Yeah, so, so rather than being the foolish people that we might uh. have been Ten to twenty years ago, we're we're now the the evil people. Interesting. Um, and one of the things that's complicated about that, and you see this especially in arguments that run something um, like this, uh, you know, folks who say, just as the '60s segregationists tried to justify racial oppression and segregation with their Bibles, so now you Christians oppose gay marriage and transgender identities yeah and unless we recognize that the first part of that statement is true that in fact that is what a lot of white american christians did in the 60s and, and before yeah 
we have no moral legs to stand on today. So it's, it's easy for us, I think, today to say, oh, my goodness, like, woe is me. I'm getting all this sort of moral attack from non-Christians, whether they're colleagues or, or friends or teachers in my kid's school or whatever. Yeah. Um, and to, to explain that all on the basis of sort of sin in the world out there, hmm. a lot of it actually springs from sin in the church in here. So, so the ways that the, the moral failures of our of our our tribe historically, to be mm. brutally, I mean, I, I, yeah, I wish this weren't the case, but it's yeah, it's <laughs> it true, is. yeah. Um, now, so the, and what what's tragic right now is that for a lot of Christians, because they're feeling that attack, as, you know, unless, especially for a lot of you know white evangelicals like like me, <clears throat> feeling that attack and thinking, okay, I need to fight back. Like all of this is completely unwarranted and unfair and untrue. And so not only do I not want to hear about the pain of transgender people or the historic um, you know, suffering of LGBT people, um, I don't want to hear about Black Lives Mattering, or I, I just I sort of want to dismiss any kind of conversations around racial justice because it's yeah. sort of all tangled up together. And what I think it's vital that we do today is actually disentangle these different pieces. Because if we go back to the scriptures, what we'll find is that the problem with the 60s segregationists was not that they were too Christian. It was that they were not half Christian enough. Hmm. It wasn't that they were reading their Bibles too carefully. Hmm. It was that they were completely failing to read their Bibles or doing hmm. utter yeah. violence to the, to the scriptures, yeah. which very clearly call us to love across racial difference, to equality for, for all people, regardless of their racial and ethnic background. Um, but you have to do the same amount of editing to the Bible to get it to, to look like it affirms, you know, um, black, right, white segregation, as mm. you have to do to get it to look like it affirms gay marriage for Christians. Mm. So, so the lesson to us from the 60s segregationists shouldn't be, well, you, you can't be on the wrong side of history, always, you know, go, go with where the current of the, the culture is going. The lesson should be, go back to your Bibles and see what it says there and hold on for dear life to that. That's really the only anchor that we're gonna have. Yeah, that's and that's interesting too. Um, before Nick asks his next question, <clears throat> I think I mean just a couple of your questions in the confronting Christianity and in the twin questions every teen should ask revolve around kind of facts and scientific studies and the background. Mm. And most of them do revolve around morality. How can we think this thing is right? So it's it's interesting that trend from oh no, Christians just don't think hard enough into mm. now no Christians are are morally corrupt because of what we think now. And it's interesting that that trajectory that's moving towards as well. Yeah. And the funny thing is we Christians should be really good at acknowledging that we're moral failures, right? Mm. Like that should be, we should be expert (laughs) at that. And and sometimes I think we kid ourselves that we're defending Jesus when we're actually just defending ourselves. Mm. And and we think that any critique of our um, Christian tradition is, is, by nature, a, a sort of attack on on Jesus and on Christianity in general, and actually, it's it's really not. <laughs> and so, you know, we need to. I think just as when we become Christians in the first place, we repent and believe. I think our, our best method or approach right now to uh, where we find ourselves culturally is to repent and believe, mm. um, to repent of the ways that that we individually or our, or our kind of tribes corporately have sinned. Um, especially when it comes to, to racial injustice and believe what the Bible says, um, 
whether it's what the Bible says about racial justice or whether it's what the Bible says about um, same-sex marriage or about um, you know, what it means to be a man or a woman, uh, that yeah. we need to be, we should be good at doing both, both those things. Yeah. Yeah. To maybe to sum up, it's maybe to, to simplify, maybe a little bit too much. It's almost like a, a while back. I mean, it's still, it's still kind of true today. I mean, somewhat true. It's the arguments move from kind of Bible centric. This is what we say about the Bible to person centric, morality centric. This is what we say about those who've misappropriated the Bible or the morality or, or, or how they've misused it less. So on the Bible, the facts of the Bible more so now on how have people treated people? Yes, although in some ways I think it's a false dichotomy because the only, the ultimate resource we have is the Bible. Yeah. Right? So on, on all these moral questions, what I want to be doing in conversation with people is to bring them back to the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah. And to say, hey, like let's look at Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan and see what it says about love across <clears throat> racial, ethnic, cultural difference. Yeah. <clears throat> let's look at, at Jesus's. Um, call to his disciples to make disciples of all nations and and the the great crowd in revelation from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping him together like let's look at the ethiopian eunuch i mean we have some of the the first black christians we have in the bible itself like, mm-hmm. let's let's listen to their stories let's go back to the teachings of jesus and help people to see quite how relevant they are today but in in ways that will be surprising and counterintuitive for many of our mm-hmm. christian friends yeah so I think it's funny. I I, I spoke at a um, an apologetics conference earlier this year, and afterwards, a guy who was there who uh, had worked there for a long time was retiring. He said, "You talked about Jesus more than anybody else we've had speak at this conference over the like, mm. years that I've been involved in it." I'm thinking, well, I don't know what I, I don't know what, <laughs> what else to talk about. about. Yeah, <laughs> um, but really, it, unless we are bringing things back to Jesus, mm. we've got nothing to offer. Yeah. I mean, I'm not that smart or interesting. Like if I'm only talking about my own ideas, <laughs> yeah. it, it's not really worth anyone else listening to. Huh. So I think even as we, I mean, we, we, we may be spending less time or it may be a later conversation. Uh, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Though I think in some ways that's, I mean, the reality is all of us will die mm-hmm. and all of our non-Christian friends will die and their parents will die and their siblings will die and their spouses will die. And so there's an extent to which the, the resurrection is never going to be a kind of theoretical <laughs> conversation. Um, but, but whereas, you know, maybe 10 or 20 years ago, the, the first conversation would have been, well, how can you believe the Bible is true? And how can you believe in miracles? So that kind of thing. That still needs to be a conversation. It may happen a little further down the road yeah. after we've had conversations around the sort of moral questions. Gotcha. Yeah. So based on the two books here, um, was there a certain order in which you presented the questions? Um, were, were you kind of thinking some were maybe more prevalent to address uh, in the beginning of the book than others? Or was there kind of a rhyme and a reason to the, to the order of the questions? Or is there maybe some of the questions you could, you could point out for us too? Yeah, I, um, I left the hardest question to last. <laughs> which is how can a loving God send people to hell? Mm-hmm. Oh, I yeah. honestly think that's the only really hard question for Christians. Hmm. And it's certainly the one that I personally find hardest. I think every other question is essentially trivial compared to that. Um, I started with a, actually somebody commented that they read through my book and it's like, 
so many footnotes at the beginning and as as the book goes on there are fewer and fewer, <laughs> yeah. fewer footnotes because it's <laughs> and the reason for that is i'm starting with questions around saying okay i presented data which any non-christian academic in that field could look at the data and say yeah that's the data now they may have a different interpretation of it or a different like that they may think different things in relation to that data but like this is the data so for example um in early on in both books i talk about the growing body of evidence that regular religious participation, so like going to church every week, is measurably good for your health and happiness. Yeah. And I feel like there's been a strong narrative, you know, when I was growing up, for example, and I think perhaps even more so today, that religion in general, Christianity in particular, is sort of psychologically unhealthy. Hmm. And that really, you know, getting out of church is going to help you to, you know, live your best life now um, and be correlated with, you know, just better psychological health. Hmm. Now, Clearly, there are people who grew up in, in, in the church who do experience terrible like psychological abuse and trauma. And I don't want to minimize that. I'm not mm. saying that's, that doesn't happen. It does. But if we look at the sort of broad trends, what we see is that um, kids who are raised religious have uh, higher levels of health and happiness than their non-religiously raised peers. Um, when we look at you know suicide rates or we look at depression rates or we look at um, deaths of despair, it's interesting research done by some folks at Harvard School of Public Health, looking at deaths of, of despair. So that's looking at suicide, alcohol and drug abuse related deaths. Um, and the, the comparison between, uh, a lot of research done on, on women, between women who go to church once a week and women who never go, it, it, it's, it's shocking. It's like, women who never go to church are five times more likely to kill themselves than women who go every week. Wow. Um, for men, it's, there's still a, a strongly measurable effect, but it's actually less. So Christianity is especially good for women. Interesting. <laughs> um, and this, the, the data is usually done um, looking at religious participation rather than Christianity specifically. But most of the data is in, in America and from Christianity because of, you know, just the tolerance of Christians here. So, you, you can look at somebody who goes to a synagogue every week and expect to see similar results in terms of the, the mental health and, and physical health benefits of that. But it's not just, oh, well, uh, go anywhere once a, once a week, meet with some people to do a fun thing together. Like if you go to the golf club every week, meet the same people for a shared activity, that only accounts for about a third of the effect hmm. that the experts find. Um, so religious participation especially is something that seems to be good for our health and happiness. Um, the controversial article, I think, in the Wall Street Journal a couple of years ago with the title, uh, if you don't believe in God, lie to your kids. Huh. Sort of just you know, <laughs> making the point very boldly that actually we are not benefiting our children by raising huh. them non-religious. When, I, when I've talked to non-believers in the past, I feel like a common thing I hear um, and a very worldly thing I hear is um, they'll say, oh, I, I hate religion. Uh, it's, it's brought nothing good to the table. It's uh, been the cause of wars and um, all that. So I know you definitely addressed that uh, in these books. So if, if I'm just thinking practically how most recently some... I've heard that question. So how would you address that on the street with somebody? Yeah, so people sometimes say, doesn't religion cause violence is the, the most succinct version of that, which I try to yeah. address in the book. And what you find if you look 
across history is, is a couple of things. Number one, it's actually humans who cause violence. So, so taking religion out of the equation doesn't seem to help a whole lot. In fact, we can look at communism, which is a very specifically atheistic belief system, uh, and see the, the greatest genocide and um, violence and cruelty in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Nazis, I, I, I looked at it sort of closely because there was a, a, a clever, um, I mean, clever in the most horrible way, um, Hitler very intentionally tried to brand his utterly anti-Christian ideology as Christian. And a, a frightening number of Christians in Germany bought it. So we need to sort of be real about that. Um, but the, I mean, even the ways in which the Nazis like edited the Bible <laughs> um, to make it sound, like, for example, to make Jesus not Jewish anymore uh, and to make the Sermon on the Mount sound like it was kind of pro-Nazi Russia. I mean, the, it was a total uh, ravaging of Christianity uh, for something that was utterly opposed to to what Christianity actually is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, more complexity there around whether, you know, some people want to say, well, the Nazis were um, you know, positioning themselves at least as, as, as religious, which, they, you know, I understand that. So if we look at the kind of comparison or, you know, what happens when you take religion out doesn't seem to help a whole lot in terms of less violence. In fact, if we just look at the, the sort of numbers and the data, it, it harms. And then to look at, okay, on what basis, on what moral basis are we judging violence? Because until Christianity came along and changed the world, mm-hmm. the idea that my tribe slaughtering your tribe was anything other than a great thing mm-hmm. just didn't really exist. I mean, it, it, the idea that Jesus taught of like loving our enemies and that somebody from the the racial and religious group which you were raised to hate was in fact your neighbor these are completely radical ways of of thinking so even when we look back over history and make moral judgments about what's like about violence and about war and about the ways in which power has been used whether we're Christians or not, we typically make them on the basis of Christian ethics. Mm-hmm. Uh, one guy who's really interesting on this is a British historian named Tom Holland. He wrote this sort of fact oh, yeah. book. Yep, yep. Yeah, Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And he was writing, he started his research, not a Christian at all. Hmm. Um, he said growing up, he was far more attracted to the Greek and Roman gods to, than to the sort of seemingly pathetic hero with Christianity. So he raised sort of vaguely like Church of England, Christian, I mean, culturally Christian in the UK completely rejected it, uh, became a professional um, sort of popular historian writing these books and, and set out to, to look at the history of the last 2000 years of Christianity in the West specifically. And from writing that book, he concluded that a lot of moral beliefs that whether we're Christians or not today in the West, we think of as just basic moral common sense are actually Christian beliefs. And that folks are sort of, it's interesting, even he looks at um, questions around gender and sexuality and says, people on both sides of these questions are arguing on the basis of Christian foundations, whether or not they realize it, because we're sort of assuming that humans are fundamentally morally equal, regardless of their sex. We're assuming that historically oppressed minorities should be protected. We're assuming that sex should be 
consensual. Like there are all sorts of things that like <laughs> historically have come to us from Christianity. Yeah. That we're assuming, even in conversations that seem to be like very starkly Christian versus non-Christian debates. Yeah, that's yeah, that's an interesting interesting point too. So, so my my last my last two questions kind of not terribly related to each other, but I think more on the practical side with these two books. Um, and you pointed out towards the beginning of this that you're hoping, and you wrote this intentionally to those who don't profess the Christian faith, whether it be atheists or any other religion. Um, so, first question would be how would you instruct or help those or how have you heard of good ways of those Christians who do buy this book? And it's generally speaking, Christians are going to buy this book um, of them handing it to their other friends say, Hey, here's, here's a book written effectively from your perspective. So how have you seen that done well? And how would you help those who are buying this book to give it to their friends who don't profess Christianity, their family members who don't profess Christianity. And then second would be, uh, your your point with uh, parents and their kids raising them up, not exposing them to some of these beliefs, um, kind of the same question. Using these two books kind of as a springboard, how would you counsel those using some of these questions? I know it's, it's kind of a, a big question um, to to a, for lack of a better word, attack these questions. Hey, let's let's take these head on as Christians, thinking Christians. Um, to to look through some of these big issues that you're going to face one day. Mm-hmm. I've heard from a lot of Christians that there have been certain questions that they've honestly dreaded getting from non-Christian friends. Yeah. Because they've felt the, the weight of them and they haven't really known what to say. And my hope is that a Christian in that position who reads Confronting Christianity or 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask if they're a little younger will feel like oh, I, I now have more of a, a, a toolkit for those conversations. Yeah. And more of an understanding how this all fits in with a very high view of the scriptures mm-hmm. and with the sort of best data that we can discern from, from the academic world at the moment. Um, and so minimally, my hope would be that if a, if a Christian reads one of these books and then those questions come up with a friend that they'll, they'll be in a better position to engage. Mm. Now that also means that if a question comes up from a friend, well, how can you, how can you believe in um, Christianity when, you know, on Christians just like homophobic bigots, for example. Yeah. My hope is that they would also be able to say, Hey, um, I recently read a book that was addressing that very particular question. Um, would you be interested in maybe, you know, if I got you a copy as well, perhaps mm. we could read it like work through it together. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Just hmm, kind of okay. an easy, easy way in like that. Yeah. When it comes to parents and kids, uh, I think one of the things that's most encouraging me, honestly, from the feedback I got from 10 questions every teen should ask, cause I've never written for teenagers before. Like what do I know? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, is hearing either directly or indirectly from teenage boys hmm. who have really enjoyed it. Cause teenage boys typically it, it's sort of a little bit of a hard crowd. It's not their, yeah, it's not their teeth. They're not, yeah, they're, they're, they're not, not necessarily known for a, a massive interest in reading in general. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I'm, I, I'm horribly stereotyping here, but I, you know, I know it's, it's it can be harder. But <laughs> yeah. It's so true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was told one story and I think maybe perhaps this was a girl, but um, one mom emailed me and she said, I just want you to know, I, I bought your book for my, my child. And um, she said she didn't want to read it. And I said, fine. I sort of left it on the bookshelf or something. And then she'd caught her 
in hmm. fact reading it sort of surreptitiously <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and she well she hadn't she hadn't kind of interrupted it but she'd sort of seen her reading it like she'd been up top of the stairs and said oh my gosh she's in the living room like reading that book and she seemed like she was actually really reading it and kind of making quite a bit of progress rather than just like hmm. looking at a page <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I tried to write the the teen version especially in a way that's just you know pretty easy easy to read and um you know try tries to get folks to be interested enough to turn the next page um so my, my hope is that it's something that parents can also read for themselves and be equipped yeah. to conversations with their children because I think often parents feel ill-equipped. But then also to um, you know, either have a little reading club with your kids, which some parents have told me they've done, yeah. or give it to the kids for them to read. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah, I found these books incredibly edifying. I mean, I, going back to teenager boys, I definitely did not read much as a teenager boy or want to <laughs> read much. Uh, yeah. Maybe I'm trying to make up for lost time these days, but on that, <laughs> but I liked these books because um, they were, they were deep and articulate and really got to the point, but you're a very skilled writer on making it enjoyable to read too. Um, yeah. And I mean, there's some nuggets in there of statistics and facts that, um, I might've heard before that you kind of refreshed or I heard for the first time. I mean, he, here's a really cool one. The fourth century Christians were motivated to help sick and poor people. Right. And that's what created hospitals. So if you're a healthcare worker, think <laughs> Christian. <right. laughs> um, and then, um, also you talked about the difference between John Lennon and Martin Luther King Jr. During that time of you know, the Imagine song by John Lennon, which the world just loved and thought it was so creative and profound, but it's very empty, right? But Martin Luther King uh, Jr., as a, as a Christian, uh, defended civil rights. And so you do, you do make things very practical, uh, good nuggets for conversation with a non-believer to defending our faith, but you also... Uh, like you said, you go back to scripture, you mention a lot of uh, passages in the Bible and you, you know, wrap it up defending the resurrection and explaining that Jesus isn't a means to an end to change our circumstances. He is the end. He isn't just a way to get a better life. He is the resurrection and the life. So um, I could talk all day because yeah. with you because there's <laughs> all authors because love Nick, talking to Nick because Nick makes him feel really good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I keep it real. I mean, uh, I give credit <laughs> where credit's due, but I know there's um, we could keep going through these questions, but I want you to get a chance to close out. If there's anything that you were <clears throat> kind of hoping to 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 go over, uh, please yeah, do. Or, or what you're hoping you kind of talked about it. What you're hoping people come away from these two books either more invigorated to do or more equipped to do yeah what was what was your hope and anything that you wanted to get in yeah i think maybe just as a last thought i've heard from um a number of people both adults and kids who wrote to me and said um that they're someone who like me experienced the same sex attraction and hadn't felt like they could talk about this mm. To anyone. So whether it was whether it's like a, a teenager who feels like they can't talk to their parents or a, a wife who feels like she can't talk to her husband, um, it, all sorts of different folks have, have emailed me with with that and saying that uh, reading what I said helped them to feel less alone. 
and, and help them to feel encouraged to have those conversations. So I guess I'd just leave that with your with your listeners that um, if that's you or or it may well be somebody in your family or in your youth group or in your church, yeah. um, statistically actually very likely uh, that you um, know people who, you know Christians who experience same-sex attraction who haven't felt like they could talk hmm. to anybody about this. Um, make yourself somebody who they could talk to you. Because one of Satan's greatest tools against us is to to convince each of us that our own struggles are the the, the kind that can't be shared with anybody else. Because we actually need we need each other, <laughs> um, and, and so isolating us and making us feel like we're alone and we can't talk to anyone is a, is a really good um, strategy that, that Satan has against us. And we as Christians can break that down um, by being the kind of people that other folks can talk to. Mm, yeah, that's good. And, and so, I mean, to end this out, where, where can people find you, the work that you're doing? Do you have a website or Twitter or anything like that? And then I know you've got a book coming out on Christmas, or either it's come out or it's coming out. Um, and then other stuff that you're working on, people can be looking forward to. Yeah. Um, so I have a website, RebeccaMcLaughlin.org, and I'm on Twitter at RebeccaMcLaughlin, um, and sort of on Facebook, uh, not Facebook, uh, Instagram as well. Um, though I don't really understand Instagram. Yeah, my Christmas book just came out last month. It's called uh, "Is Christmas Unbelievable," huh. and it's a very short evangelistic book. It's about eleven thousand words, so you could read it in like an hour and a bit. Okay. Uh, it's designed if there are pastors out there. It's designed to be given out at your Christmas services, or if you're someone who writes a Christmas letter and sends it to your family and friends, hmm. you could get an extra big envelope. Um, it's cheap. You can hmm. buy yeah. it for like two dollars a. A, a pop and, and again it's written to non-christians hmm. and trying to help them uh, see the credibility and desirability of, of jesus um and i'm currently i'm working on two more books right now both on the gospels so one called confronting hmm. jesus which will be a, a follow-up to confronting christianity for folks who are willing to get more engaged with the, with the gospels so it's looking at jesus in the gospels especially yeah. And then another book um, on women in the Gospels, which is provisionally called Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. Hmm. Which is looking at, you know, how, what do we learn about Jesus by looking at the, the women with whom he engages in, in the scriptures? Yeah, cool. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah, well, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on, taking the time to talk about your books and uh, about these hard questions that Christians both have to answer and that are being asked it's it's not like they're not being asked we're just not hearing them they're being asked we not right. we may not be yeah. here yeah we may not be hearing them so yeah it's been a pleasure and, and hopefully we can have you on again in the future sounds great thanks peter and nick thank you hey guys we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast guilt grace gratitude and we uh, as we've said before we are bridging the gap to reformed christian theology for your listening pleasure so we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world and how to best do that is rate and review us on itunes yeah and you after you rate a review or instead of written review or doing everything all in once, retweeting us on Twitter, liking us on Twitter, liking us on Instagram, following us on both of those platforms, because that actually puts in front of people's physical face, this podcast, these guests, and most importantly, the gospel, the doctrines uh, that these guests are, are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing and, uh, 
after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. The yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll, it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time.